Hello and welcome to Adam and Eve on CGSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton and around the world on CGSR.com. My name is Sky Hindman. And my name is Marco Visconti and we will be your hosts for today's episode of Adam and Eve. Thank you for tuning in. Adam and Eve is Edmonton's only feminist news radio show. We are adamant on highlighting, discussing, and engaging with issues that affect women across Edmonton and around the world. On this week's episode, we're discussing intersectionality in pop culture with a focus on how race and gender are intertwined. First off, we have a discussion of the film Get Out. Afterwards, we have a better know a feminist piece by Marco Visconti about Alice Walker and womanism. Now we're going to go to Roseva Fork Jenkins for our review of the film Get Out. This horror film was written by African-American director Jordan Peele and is centered on the black experience within white America. Roseva invited Fia Frisky and Ramnik Tang to talk about the film. In their discussion, the personal gets political as our guests talk about how they related to the film. We're here today to discuss the film Get Out. Get Out was released on the 24th of February, 2017. It's the first film directed by Jordan Peele of Key and Peele fame. We will be giving spoilers during our discussion, so if you haven't seen it, go watch it first and then listen back to this. My name is Rose Eva Forbes Jenkins, and I'm here as an Adam and Eve producer, because I think this film has a lot to say about race and gender in a modern political context. And we're really fortunate to have an amazing group of people who are here to discuss the movie today. Do you care to introduce yourselves? My name is Fia Frisky. Um, I generally just like movies, especially this one. Um, I was a film studies and anthropology major. My name is Ramnik. I am 31 years old. I have a degree in psychology. I minored in the bland science of biological sciences. I work for an insurance company and I got married in the summer. I'm also a professional wrestling geek, a film geek, and a hip-hop head. Oh yes, uh, shameless plug because because I've been forced to do it. Uh, I host the Five River Beat, which is a Punjabi program, and it airs Thursdays at 8.05 p.m. And I'm Roseva, and I produce Adam and Eve, as I mentioned, and I also have a double major in film studies and psychology. What drew everyone to seeing the movie? Hmm, that's a good question. I think, well, one, I just watch a lot of movies, um, but also I liked Key and Peele, um, and I kind of knew a little bit about the movie before I went in. It was getting a lot of hype, so it's not like I went opening night and you know, it was fresh for me. So I think what I heard about it made me more interested. Also, I love horror movies. So I was expecting it to be even more horror-like than it was, but it was great. So <laughs> I was just intrigued by the idea that Jordan Peele directed a horror movie. And I, too, am a huge, passionate horror fan. And I thought to myself, hey, this doesn't sound right. This is like Daft Punk producing a Garth Brooks album. It makes no sense to me, right? <laughs> so I'm like, I'm intrigued by the concept. I didn't want to do any reading on it, right? Because I like to go into a film uh, without any reviews in advance and form my own opinion, right? So I looked at an article, I think, and I saw the word slavery. I'm like, okay, this is a film, right? A horror film set during slavery times, right? Mm. I'm sold. And then the 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm like, you know what? I got to go first day. And that's what happened. So I think we're going through a bit of a horror renaissance right now with movies like It Follows, The Babadook, and uh, the, the Invitation, right? So oh, yeah. rather than just saturating the film with torture porn, right? Just sex and violence, nonstop, gory entrails everywhere, right? He, he took his time, right? He paced himself, and then he gave you 
what exa- exactly what you wanted from a horror film. He gave you the thrills towards the end, and he gave you some minor scares, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, the uh, the lady, uh, the grandmother. Oh yeah, right? grandma yeah. walking yeah. in the background. Or the guy the who, who hasn't gotten over <laughs> his loss to uh, oh, what was the uh, Jesse Owens, right? Was it Jesse yeah. Owens? Yeah, he hasn't gotten over it, and when he's running towards the protagonist. Like horrified, you're like, what's going on? What's going on? Is this a hallucination? But yeah, mm-hmm. thrills like that, those are good. But if you're just going to bombard the audience with thrills, with like gore, the audience is going to become desensitized and they're not going to care for it anymore. Yeah, I think we are in a desensitized age, though, which is why these horror movies are so poignant and so effective is because we have movies like Tarantino movies, which are very common. And so you see gore and violence all the time. Nothing really scary about that. What's scarier to especially people of our generation, I think, is the actual everyday horrors that we deal with, like racism, like sexism, like, you know, transphobia. Things like that are actually way more scary than getting your head chopped off, like, because you have to deal with that every day. Yeah, there's a lot of things you realize at the end. I mean, with the, I mean, quote, twist uh, with Rose's character, um, there's a lot of little things that you realize up to that point, like the reason why she wouldn't let the police officer look at his ID is because she didn't want that to be in the system just in case, you know, he comes up missing. And that police officer is like, I have proof that he was with this woman last. Um, or, you know, her making it all about her, like, oh, you want to leave without me sort of thing when after the party. It's very interesting. Speaking of the police officer, did you think that that was him at the end? Yes. Not the friend? Yes. Totally. Yeah. That's what I meant about the audience reaction was I love mm-hmm. how the audience was collectively like, oh, no, a police car coming. And how that's so twi- how society is so twisted that a police car, which is supposed to represent like safety in society in this moment, everyone in this audience knows that a police car means this guy will die. I don't know if it was everyone, though. That's the thing that I worry about is I think um, I think a lot of people thought oh good a police officer so now he can explain that he's in this messed up situation and he can get out of it and I don't necessarily mean people that like did you feel that way oh god no No, I thought like Trayvon Martin right here Rodney King I thought something was going to happen yeah and I mean he talked about that Peel did um talked about how he originally actually wanted him to be um a police officer Rodney instead of Rodney police officer and um, that he would get a death sentence. The film would have been more effective that way. It reminds Mm. me of uh, the original Night of the Living Dead. Have you two seen it? Mm -hmm. Black protagonist, late 60s film, and not a protagonist that's Sidney Poitier. This is a black actor. I think his name was Dwayne Jones. Mm -hmm. Nobody really knows him at the time. He's an unknown. George Romero says that he hired him because he was the best actor that he knew of, right? But I think he was trying to make a statement. And at the end of the film, can I spoil this for you, Rosiva? Go for it. He (laughs) survives this zombie like uh, apocalypse and he looks out the window right where the cops are coming this is knee deep in the south and a cop shoots him right in the head Mm -hmm. now is it because he thinks he's a zombie or is it because he's black is it a lynching Mm. and i thought this film was going to end like that it would have made it more powerful in my opinion but it wouldn't have been the success that it is because it needs that satisfactory that satisfying ending and i think it's different for black people to watch that film and then to have it be a cop at the end I think that I mean for me uh, I'm a pretty passing 
mixed race person. So for me, I don't really have to deal with a lot of the particular microaggressions that are happening throughout the movie to Chris. And I don't have to necessarily worry about police brutality constantly. Um, But I think that overall, you can already tell it's a very tense movie from the very beginning. I mean, from the first moment he says, did you tell your parents that I'm black? And she says, oh, why would I do that? That's so wild of you. Like, I didn't even think of it. Um, Immediately from that point, I can feel every black person I know, my whole family would, and myself included, I would be so concerned if I heard that from a partner. And so from that moment, that was just the most tense situation. And all throughout the film, you're just kind of waiting for this, you know, bubbling of horrible things to happen to get to um you know that point in the film uh the turning point in the film and then it's so intense from that point you're rooting so hard for this person to escape the situation because you can imagine yourself in that situation so easily even though it is such an abstract sort of thing it's so realistic that I think having a cop car at the end would just there would be no breath in the film. But it, would, but it would have been more of a statement, like Fruitvale mm. Station, in my opinion. Something like that mm. needed to happen towards the end because it would have uh, resonated more with the crowd. You said Fruitvale Station? Yes. That's a true story. It is a true story. <laughs> but uh, this has a lot. This is based on the truth. This is based on race in America at the mm-hmm. moment. So sure, it has that sci-fi element. But uh, he's trying to challenge the audience, the mm. white liberals, the extreme racists. Yeah. I don't think and you know what's crazy? I'm this. sorry? I said, I don't think any extreme racists are going to see this one. <laughs> no, they no, already heard what it's about. No, the, uh, the people that. that watch Fox News, right? <laughs> yeah. They heard that movie and they said, get out? Yeah, I'll stay out of the theater. Yeah, thanks <laughs> for that recommendation. <laughs> exactly. You know what's crazy, though, is that this film was released 50 years after Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, right? The Sidney mm-hmm. Poitier film with Catherine Hepburn and I think Spencer Tracy. So this mm-hmm. film is something that should have came out 50 years ago. There was supposed to be a progression, but all of a sudden with this like Trump presidency, we've regressed. I was going to ask too, like, because if you said it, if it would have been a different ending, if he would have been shot by that cop at the end, would that have then been produced by a major motion picture studio? Mm. Would they have also funded the film? That's a good question. No, I don't think so. Because every white person in this film is evil. Yeah. That's true, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Literally every single one. Mm -hmm. Because then this film would be perceived as being racist. I mean, it already is, though. It right? It is, but that would take it to a whole, what does Key uh, uh, say? He says, whole nother level, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I personally wouldn't have liked the film as much if that was the case. But, but also because I just know that that's real. Like, I don't need that to be a statement made to me. But I guess there's other audiences that do need to know that, that don't. For some reason, no police brutality is real and don't for some reason think that he would have been either murdered instantly or put to death by the judicial system. I don't know. Maybe. I don't think that Jordan Peele would be making a movie for black people by having that be the ending. It wouldn't be for them. They already know. But what about the tragic ending and do the right thing? Do you think that's a film for black people? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely do. I think with mm-hmm. the tragic ending, you uh, you show what happened to Trayvon Martin, that mm-hmm. uh, that young man that was shot in Ferguson. I forgot his last, was it Brown? 
and then the Ferguson unrest subsequently happened. Mm-hmm. Like you're, like you're showing what happened. And the comic relief towards this moment, I guess it's satisfying to the audience, but you took film studies, mm-hmm. so you're used to films with like tragic endings, like Bergman films mm-hmm. or um, Bicycle Thieves, right? Like it, it mm-hmm. doesn't bother me. I wanted a tragic ending because that would have been a, more of a powerful statement. But Rosiva, in my opinion, is right. Uh, I don't think it would be the success that it is today. My name is Rose Eva Forks Jenkins, and you've been listening to my conversation about the film Get Out with my fellow film nerd pals, Thea and Remnik. You just witnessed the momentous occasion of Remnik admitting that I was right about something. Next up in the discussion is the use of comedy within the film. Do you think the comedy makes it more unsettling, though? Because the film is kind of punctuated by comedy. Mm-hmm. I think the comedy is important because that's largely how people of color in general, but especially black people, deal with their oppression. That's what you do in situations like that. You know, uh, especially like the party scene is such a good example. I mean, people were groaning, laughing very uncomfortably at some of the things being said because you're used to hearing things like that and they're uncomfortable. I mean, Lots of people laugh when they're uncomfortable. So I think I think it is it was important for there to be comedy written into the script. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think you like the comedy makes it like relatable and makes you like I also like the party scene because comments like that are really you see how absurd they are. You laugh at them because they're so absurd and yet you hear them every day and like maybe let's say someone that wasn't as aware of how ridiculous those comments sound finally see them in that light and see how absurd and ridiculous they are. So that's why I thought the comedy was used so effectively in that scene. And I also thought that, like, so that's why I think Chris should live is because he's a relatable character. We relate to him. And because we relate to him, we want him to live. He's smart. And true, also true. to go against the stereotype of... Of the black guy dying first. Plus, how often do you see a black protagonist in a horror film? So I do think it is essential that he survives. I agree with you, mm-hmm. too. Not only is he smart, but he's relatable because he gives people the benefit of the doubt. And he's empathetic. I mean, he truly believes he loves Rose. And he really gives her family a chance, even though they're clearly psychos. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, even though he should, have, he should have been running from the first second. I mean, still... as soon as the dad said, my man, I would have been like, I'm out. I would have voted for Barack, Barack Obama three times. Oh. I love Tiger. Do you ever deal with that white, liberal, benign racism? Um, I think I hear, I mean, people don't really know how to identify me racially because I'm racially ambiguous, as people would say. So... I hear a mixed bag of things. I mean, I mostly hear people saying racist things not directly to me, but about a particular group that I belong to because I'm a Muslim and I'm mixed. So I hear people saying anti-black things very often and anti-Muslim things very often. And it's usually pretty hard to talk about it because I'm outspoken. So I'll tell them that I'm a Muslim or I'm black so you know that's not funny um but directly to me like for instance if someone thinks i'm indian they won't say anything racist about indians in front of me all right 
or they won't say anything racist about Middle Eastern people in front of me because but not like overt. Sorry to yeah. interrupt, but not like overt racism. You mean like microaggressions? Just something that makes you uncomfortable. For example, uh, if someone comes to me and this has happened uh, mm-hmm. and asks me, "What's my favorite curry? What restaurant in uh, Edmonton offers the best curry?" and I don't like curry. It's a smell that I've tried to escape for thirty-one years, right? Yeah. Um, Anything like that? Yeah, I mean, the simple question of asking me where I'm from is a huge microaggression. Asking me what I am, I mean, being racially ambiguous, like, what are you, is a horrible, uncomfortable question to be asked. It is, yeah. Like, Where are you originally from? Mm, uh, Edmonton, mm. I was born and raised. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, my parents are immigrants, but that doesn't matter, because so are almost all of ours, so. This is true. Yeah, so... It's a lot of things. <laughs> you know what I had yesterday? Why do you people always have names that I can't pronounce? <gasps> My name is Ramnik. You blend the words rum and unique. Those are English words. Ramnik. <laughs> yeah, that's that's one I've heard a lot because my full name's not Fia. That's just the name that everyone calls me. What is it, Fatima? It's Luthvia. 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 Yeah, yeah, so it's L-U-T-H. So that's a hard thing for people to pronounce. So I've already internalized that basically since I started school and made it easy. Also, I wasn't super proficient with English when I started school because I grew up speaking Swahili, which I have something interesting to say about in relation to this movie. Um, But yeah, so I've always had to deal with like, how do you pronounce your name? Things like that. Or even questions like, oh, well, why don't you look black if you're black? Like things like that. That's brutal. Yeah, I hear stuff like that all the time when people find out. Or, you know, asking like if, you know, my cousin is like my adopted kid because he's like a black kid. It's just lots of weird things like that. So people are pretty horrible sometimes. But in relation to Swahili and this movie, the uh, main title, the main theme song um, that's introduced when they're driving to Rose's parents' house is actually Swahili's song. It's not one that I ever knew. I just kind of recognized while it was on that it was Swahili lyrics. I guess um, Jordan Peele worked with the composer to um, find songs that were very rooted in like black music. So Childish Gambino has a song, Redbone, that's on there. And all the lyrics that you hear are super important to the story because, you know, like for instance, the lyric is stay woke. And it's repeated over and over and over again from Redbone. And then the um, Swahili song, I'm going to try and remember because I only know the first word. I was like, that's Swahili. <laughs> um, it's Sikiliza kwa wahenga. So Sikiliza means uh, listen, um, like as in you should listen. And then uh, kwa is like two. And wahenga technically like the way i knew it is like sages like wise people but i guess it means ancestors so and it's repeated like very creepy that theme is scary (laughs) sets up the tone of the show or the movie um so it says listen to your ancestors over and over again and like this very foreboding sort of tone and it's i think it's really effective oh thanks for sharing that i would have never known My name is Rose Ebefork Jenkins, and I'd very much like to thank uh, Ramnik Tung and Fia Frisky for coming into the studio and talking about the politics of the film Get Out. 
Before we get to our next segment, I wanted to play a sample of the soundtrack now that it's been discussed within the haunting context of the film. Here's Redbone by Childish Gambino. Welcome back to Adam and Eve. Uh, my name is Sky Hindman, and you just heard the song Redbone by Childish Gambino. We were playing this song because it was an important part of the discussion that we just had about the film Get Out. Thank you to Adam and Eve producer Rose Eva for putting that segment together. Our theme for today's show is intersectionality within pop culture. To continue with that theme, we have a Better Know a Feminist segment produced by Marco Visconti. Hello, Evers. My name is Marco Visconti, and it's time for Better Know a Feminist. This week, I want to chat with you about Alice Walker and womanism. But first, who is Alice Walker? Alice Walker is an African-American writer and poet, most well-known for her novel The Color Purple, which was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1983, making Alice Walker the first Black woman to receive the award. And the book was later adapted into a major film directed by Steven Spielberg in 1985, and it co-stars Oprah. In The Color Purple, Walker draws on her childhood growing up in rural Georgia to explore the lives of black women living in the American South in the 1930s. She illustrates the various ways that her lives have been marked by the legacy of slavery and racial segregation in the USA, simultaneously exposing the intertwining nature of misogyny and white supremacy. The emotional and physical struggles of the book's protagonists are laid bare often in explicit ways to drive these points home. Here's Alice Walker summarizing the story of The Color Purple in an interview with Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! on the book's 30th anniversary. For especially young people who may not have, definitely they've probably heard of The Color Purple mm -hmm. but may not have read it, just lay out the story for us. Well, the story is about Celie, and um, who was abused by her, her stepfather. She lost her own father, who was lynched, and this is part of the story that is rarely uh, talked about, that her own father was lynched because he was so successful as a businessman in the South, when black people were not supposed to be successful. And then she um, became the victim of her stepfather. Uh, and raped, uh, and she had two children uh, who were taken away from her and ended up uh, in Africa with her, her sister, who had gone there as a missionary's helper. Uh, it basically is the struggle of someone who thinks she has no voice and has no place and writes letters to God because she has nobody else to write to. Um, and then she discovers that the god that she's writing to is deaf, because he's basically the Christian god that has been imposed on black people. Uh, and at that point, she, she, she starts writing to her sister, and eventually she understands that divinity is all around us and that we are a part of it, and it's in nature. 
In addition to being a novelist, Alice Walker is also a vocal advocate for black feminism and an active contributor to contemporary feminist theory. Back in 1982, even before she wrote The Color Purple, Walker penned a collection of personal essays called In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, Womanist Prose, in which she coined the term womanist and womanism. So what is womanism? And what makes it different from feminism? This is how Andrea Lewis explains it in a video made by the online magazine The Root. You may have heard the word intersectionality thrown around a lot lately. A black woman coined the term in 1989 to highlight the overlapping ways black women are oppressed every day. Her name is Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, and her work is especially relevant today. Because even though intersectionality is a buzzword these days, traditional feminism still doesn't consider the many ways black women and other women of color experience oppression. And that makes a lot of people feel marginalized by the movement that's supposed to fight for them. Despite being historically left out of feminism, black women have always been doing the work, creating their own political and social movements that don't depend on traditional feminism at all. Writer Alice Walker coined the term womanist in 1983. Womanism is a social framework that separates itself from feminism and centers black women. Here's how scholar Laylee Phillips puts it. Unlike feminism and despite its name, womanism does not emphasize or privilege gender or sexism. Rather, it elevates all sites and forms of oppression to a level of equal concern and action. So Alice Walker intentionally describes her politics as womanist, as opposed to feminist, as a deliberate contrast to the dominant narrative of mainstream feminism, which historically has always privileged the voices of white middle-class women who do not face the compounded barriers of racial oppression in addition to gender oppression. You might be familiar with the idea of intersectionality, and womanism is definitely similar. Intersectionality was coined by Professor Kimberly Crenshaw in the 1980s, around the same time Alice Walker coined the term womanist. Intersectionality urges feminists to consider how systems of oppression and privilege may compound and coexist within a single body simultaneously. And in return, it pushes us to consider how liberation means different things to different groups of marginalized folks, based on the uniqueness of their particular intersection of identities. Basically, intersectionality reminds us that women, as a group, are too diverse for their struggles to be universally shared or defined. And the only way to practice a feminism that is truly centered on empathy is through the acknowledgement of women's specific experiences both as individuals and as members of their specific communities. However, womanism goes beyond the inclusion of elements such as race and class in feminist discourse about gender justice. Womanism takes a much harder stance against the failures of mainstream feminism to care for the needs of black women and other women who do not fit the privileged model of womanhood as represented by white middle-class society. By defining itself as a separate movement and a separate set of politics, womanism represents a new growth of feminist discourse while underlining the agency of black women and other women of color who have been ignored and hurt by mainstream feminism. That being said, some view womanism as an alternative form or a complement to modern feminism. But in Alice Walker's own words, womanist is to feminist as purple is to lavender. For Adam and Eve, my name is Marco Visconti. I want something else, a different system entirely. One not seen on this earth for thousands of years, if ever. Democratic womanism. 
Notice how this word has man right in the middle of it. That's one reason I like it. He is right there, front and center, but he is surrounded. I want to vote and work for a way of life that honors the feminine, a way that acknowledges the theft of the wisdom female and dark mother leadership might have provided our spaceship all along. I am not thinking of a talking head kind of gal, happy to be mixing it up with the baddest bad boys on the planet. Her eyes a slit, her mouth a zipper. No, I am speaking of true regime change, where women rise to take their place en masse at the helm of Earth's frail and failing ship, where each thousand years of our silence is examined with regret, and the cruel manner in which our values of compassion and kindness have been ridiculed and suppressed, brought to bear on the disaster of the present time. The past must be examined closely, I believe, before we can leave it there. That was a report by Marco Visconti about Alice Walker and womanism, which ended with a clip of Alice Walker's reading of her poem, Democratic Womanism. The clip was taken from a news broadcast by Democracy Now! And that's it for this week's episode of Adamant Eve, your feminist news show on CJSR. Thank you so much for tuning in. We've been your hosts, Sky Hindman and Marco Visconti. Have a great adamant evening. So long for now.